0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. You ever feel like that no matter how hard you work, you can never get ahead? That inbox never gets empty and it can seem like the whole universe is against you. Teaching team member David McNeely continues this series, What Do You Work For? Your part in a larger story. With this message entitled, The Plot Thickens, Work is Hard. Which covers Genesis chapter three verses sixteen through nineteen and Ecclesiastes chapter two verses seventeen through twenty-six. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, we are in a series right now. Bob talked about it earlier, and it's on work. And Bob kicked us off last week. And and uh, you know what? Let me one more thing. Um, I'm excited about tonight because this is the first time that I've been in a night service in which this is actually my third time through. For the sermon, normally on Saturday nights, it's kind of the first time through, and it's the roughest for guys like me. Now, Bob has been working with me for quite some time now. He is one of the most disciplined communicators that's out there. Asked him if he would help me, and uh, he's actually one of the best preaching coaches um, available. Lots of guys in our area use him. Um, but, but so here's what you get to y- you now get used to this. You may actually get the best sermon that we have available to you by the time we get a chance to run through it for the uh, third time. So we're in a series. Bob kicks us off, and he talked about work. And I don't have time to do a recap of all that he talked about. He had several good things that he mentioned in there. But just one thing uh, uh, for sure. He told us that work is good. And the reason in work is good is because it was created good by God. All along in God's mind when he was creating humans, he had work in mind for them. Let's go all the way back to the beginning and God is creating. He speaks and things come into being. There's light, there's uh, there's planets that he puts out there. The earth specifically, he forms, he fashions, his spirit hovers over, he separates the water and the land. He does all of his work over this period of six days. He rests on the seventh day. He creates man and he creates woman. And all along in his mind, he was creating them with such a capacity that they could be workers. Now, I don't know how much you've thought about this, but in the beginning, God created a garden for man and woman to inhabit. But his plan all along was not to stay in a garden. I love the agrarian culture. I am confident the agrarian society will will be a part of our eternity. We will still be growing plants and food and and, and we will be uh, uh, using it uh, in a variety of ways. But that's not the only thing that God wants for us. So when he created a garden, he put us in there to work. What he was saying to them is, I want you to be stewards of the earth. And so God created this thing called working. We reflect God because God's a worker. God gives us ingenuity. He gives us creativity. He gives us ability. He gives us capacity. The human body itself, I've just learned this recently from a guy that does CrossFit training. The human body is is filled with this amazing capacity level to work. Now, he doesn't know about the series that we're doing. As far as I know, this particular individual does not have a walk with God, but he's sharing with me the human body. is amazing what we can do. I think God designed it from the very beginning that you and I would go and we would use the resources he gave us. We would mine the hidden potential in the earth. And so in the beginning, there's a garden. In the end, there's the city of Jerusalem as the Bible ends. And so in between then, God had a plan that he will develop this whole civilization, this whole culture, uh, that there will be structures, there will be systems put in place, and it all reflects him. It's all good. And so it's from a very early age I heard, because my father is a pastor, I heard my father make comments like this. There's really no difference between the carpenter and the preacher. There's really no difference between the actor and the missionary. There's really no difference between the garbage collector and the person singing in the choir. I heard that growing up all over. And so I grew up with a basic understanding of that. I saw my father as a minister, and and I must confess I have a bias towards it because I just have such a good taste in my mouth. The example that my father gave, um, a deeply flawed man, uh, but the way he loved us uh, gave me a great taste in my mouth of ministry. When I began to grow... As a Christian, it was uh, the end of my freshman year of college. I had really not walked with the Lord at all up until that point. And when I began to walk with him, um, the the Lord began to convict me of a particular area in life. Now, let me very clearly state on the front end, um, I I am not saying that this should apply to anyone else. I believe that this was God laying this conviction on my heart at that particular time. He may not lay that same conviction on me in the future, um, but but then at that time, I had this this deep-seated conviction that God was directing me in this manner. And here's where he was directing me in. The last two years of high school, my junior and senior year, I worked in a clothing store. It was a fine men's clothing years. We sold wonderful clothes, suits, sport coats. I mean, it was the real deal. It was all exclusive men's clothes, and we were exclusive. So I wore a coat and tie every day to work. I wore my suspenders. I wore my white bucks or my other shades. I wore pinstripe suits in the summertime um, I looked like Colonel Sanders a good bit of the summer. We we sold clothes, and my job was to sell as many clothes as I possibly can to as many people. And I remember distinctly my bosses, wonderful, wonderful men. I will go to my grave declaring their their, their praises, singing their praises. They were um, they taught me so much about people, how to read people, not to use people, um, how to read people. Period, to help them um in life. Uh, they, They share with me, it doesn't matter what someone looks like. It doesn't matter what they sound like. Your job is to sell clothes. It's our job to get the money. So when someone would walk in, I had this challenge that was in front of me, and that was to sell as much clothes as I possibly can to them. Now that was a wonderful challenge for me. I had a personality that really enjoys being put into a room of of people that I don't know very well. I enjoy the challenge of that. Meeting new folks is fun. And so I'm in a job where there's very little stress. I'm making wonderful amounts of money. I'm living at home. I have no real responsibilities in life whatsoever. I'm thoroughly enjoying this job. I did not know that work was hard. Work was fairly easy. And so this conviction that God laid on my heart was, David, Speaking to me specifically, I have a different plan for you. And what began to gnaw at me was I was asking people to spend more money than they should have to buy clothes that they really didn't need to impress folks they probably, really, really probably shouldn't be impressing. And so I had a conversation with those men. They were very gracious in their understanding. I went off, and so I went from working in the fine men's clothiers over now to working in the landscaping business. And so I'm outside. And I would go into people's yards, and I had this wonderful opportunity to be creative, to have plants that would come and different colors that would bloom at different times of the year and to shape trees and to place them. in I loved it. It was wonderful. When I didn't have a job in somebody's yard, somebody's house, I would go back to the nursery where we would work. And much of the day of the nursery was spent in this position right here. As we had pots that we would prune or we would move around, we had various things we had to do consistently, whether it's putting in fertilizer, we had to put it in by hand. Each one of these pots has been along, depending on how old they were. So I'm here or I'm right here. Most of my day was spent down. And so doing this right here, oh, I felt, and I understood for the first time that work is hard. Now, when I say work is hard, most of you say, wow. Uh, It took you 20 years to figure that out. You, You understand work is difficult. Maybe you don't have a manual labor job. Maybe you're working in the marketplace and your job is to sell, to buy and to sell certain goods and services. Maybe you are working with banks and what happened a couple of years ago has made your job even more difficult than it was beforehand. Maybe you're working in the world of technology. And as technology advances and the the competition widens and there's more people in this industry, you know that work is difficult. Maybe you are a stay-at-home mom and you know how difficult your work is. Maybe you're a student and you know the task that God has given you in front of you right now, that the work that he has put in front of you is to do well in school, to do the best to your ability, and you know um, it is difficult. So here's the question. Why is work difficult? so hard. If God is the one who created it, if he was the one who had this in his mind, if it was his idea to place us a body, to give us a body that can can function at a high level, if it's his idea to to have us to be creative to mining the earth's potential, it gives us all the resources that we need, then why in the world is it so difficult now? Why are we not enjoying it far more than we should? The answer is simple, and if you've grown up in church, you know exactly what I'm going to say. The reason work is so hard is simply because of the fall. See, when God created work, he created work for us that we would be done in in, in three directions, that, that we would enjoy it in three directions. The first direction he gave us was upward or Godward. So as he gave us work, he gave us specific instructions about how it is that we would live. And we didn't have to worry about questioning him on this. We understood our place. We understood he's the creator. We are the created. We understood he's the one with all the ideas and the ingenuity. He passes some of that on to us, and we get to a chance to co-create with him, not to create the world as it is now, but to create beautiful things out of the earth. We had this relationship with him in which everything was hunky-dory. We understood our place. Work was Godward in nature, meaning every day that Adam and Eve woke up, they said, today I get to work for the glory of God. The other direction that God had set up for us in the beginning in creation was this inward direction of work, meaning that there was going to be a personal level of satisfaction with the work of our hands, that we would approach work, and at the end of every day, we would say, ah, that was fun. That was great. I really enjoyed that. There was a a deep level of satisfaction that would be taking place because as the world began to expand with people, all of the work that was to be done was to be done for the flourishing of the whole community. And as you would see, the particular gifts that you had, the talents that you had, the things that you brought to the table were being used by others, being enjoyed by others, going to the benefit of others. There would be this, oh God, this is great and I love meeting the needs of people. I love here." The third direction was outward, meaning that we would serve specifically others that are around us. We would meet basic needs that they had. This is before the fall, so there would be no need, for example, for a doctor. This was just something we were providing for others. When we had this work in this multi-direction, this was what drove the ship. When this was right, this was good. When this was good, it propelled us out in this direction. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And while they're there, God places a tree right in the middle of the garden. And I don't think there's anything special about this particular tree. It's just that God said this tree right here is the one that you cannot have. It was just a barrier. It was a reminder that this world is not ours. It's his. We're called to steward it, not to own it. And so putting this in the place for them to have the constant reminder, I must abide by his wishes. I'm directed by him. They had this in front of them, and then along comes this serpent, and the serpent weasels his way in there, and he talks to the couple, and he says, by the way, you don't really believe, do you, that God has your best interest in mind? Because really what God's saying is, if you were to touch this, then you will be like me. And for the first time, they began to think in their minds, I wonder what it would be like to be like God. To no longer have a relationship of accountability, but now I'm autonomous. Now that sounds pretty good. So she takes the fruit. She eats it. The scriptures tell us that she was deceived in this. She Didn't at the time know what she was doing was wrong. Adam knew exactly what was going on. He knew it was wrong. And he followed her right down the path anyway. And when they ate it, devastating things happened that we are still living with to the effects to this day. The first thing that happened was this relationship right here was broken. Now, it didn't mean that they didn't think he was there anymore. It just meant that this relationship was marred. They could no longer see him with the clarity that they did before. They no longer saw him as a loving, compassionate, wonderful, guiding father. They now saw him as the one who was after them. And so they tuck tail and they run in an opposite direction, knowing that his wrath is going to fall down on them. This right here, the trust is broken. This right here was also affected. You remember beforehand, they were naked and they were unashamed. They didn't even realize they didn't have clothes on. The value was not going without clothes. The value the scripture is trying to get across to us is this. There was nothing for them to be ashamed of. But now this sin entered the picture. Now they're afraid here. And they look at themselves in a distorted picture. They no longer see themselves as they really are. They see themselves as something God did not intend. And so they run and they try to make clothes for themselves. I've said this before, but just it's worth pointing out again. To show you the level of the shame that they were dealing with, keep in mind they were the only two people on the planet. It's not like they were having to deal with millions of people around where they could live in that shame where they were constantly exposed it's with their spouse who had seen them, who had experienced them, who understood them, who knew them. This right here was so distorted, they had to go and figure out a way to hide from one another. But this relationship right here, this outward relationship, it started there with the man and the woman. That relationship was also distorted and broken. There was never a fight before them, uh, with them before this. They never had a disagreement. They were always on the same page. They were hearing from the Lord. They were putting into practice what it is that he asked them to do. Name the animals, and they name the animals. They're busy working hard. They're enjoying the fruit of their labor. They are working in harmony and perfection with one another. There was nothing for them to clash over, but now it's constant clashing. And if you have been married for any more than 20 minutes, you understand what I'm talking about. What comes naturally for couples, my wife and I included, is this. For 24 years, my parents invested in me. They sent me off at age 19, whatever it was. I grew up independent, trying to figure out how to do life on my own. And then now the scriptures say that I'm supposed to become what? The two become one. That just doesn't happen very easily. This is broken. It affects this, which dramatically impacts this. How about our work? Do you know the same thing has happened for work? It's it's not just these... Apply this same principle to the workplace. When the fall happened, we no longer worked for the glory of God. And so where God intended for us to work Godward, he intended us to be satisfied inward and have a focus outward outward. After the fall, by and large, we had one focus, and that was an inward focus, and work became about how it is that it will benefit me. How can I advance? What resources can I use and abuse? Who can I exploit in order to accomplish what I want to accomplish? Because I don't understand even who I am. I have a warped view of who I am, and oftentimes my identity is tied up in my work rather than work being an opportunity to, to give to God, to give to others, to be satisfied. Now I'm trying to measure my worth and value based on what it is that I do. And when I measure my worth and value based on what it is that I do, I have to exploit, I have to abuse. I have to take whatever it is that I need to take in order to advance as far as I need to advance. But one last thing. You understand, that even our definition of success was radically altered in the fall. Now, I've been reading a a great deal here uh, recently on this particular subject because I feel like I've got a long way to catch up to understand what it's like in the the business market. In many ways, I'm the most unqualified person to talk in this sermon series. I've been a pastor since uh, in my early 20s. I've been dealing with high school students for the bulk of those years. So when it comes to the workplace, there are many of you are far more qualified to talk about this than I am. So I've been reading a great deal. And, and uh, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller has been a, a book that's had a, a great impact and influence on me. Bob and I both have been actually uh, putting our outlines in somewhat of the same order that he's been doing. We've been ripping off of him. But the book that's had a particular impact on me is one from Jeff Van Duser, and it's called Your Business, Why Your Business Matters to God. I want you to listen to this. L- listen to how it is. And when I'm reading this definition, I want you to be thinking, even as I'm reading it, how have we distorted this and turned this in another direction? The purpose of business is to serve. In particular, it serves by making goods and services available to the community that will enable a community to flourish, and it provides meaningful and creative jobs for its employees. The purpose of business is to serve. And profit is important in business because if you don't make a profit, you cannot serve. Can I give you just a quick illustration of where this is true? I happen to be fond of the world of adoption, it's the way that God chose to build our family. And adoption is expensive, sometimes it is prohibitively expensive. But what happens in this world of adoption is they have to charge fees so that people can work and they can minister effectively to all of the people that are involved in this. And at the end of the day, if an adoption agency says, you know what we want to do? We just want to make this happen for as many families as we possibly can. They run out of business. And they lose the opportunity to help other people adopt profit is important. But why is it important? So that you can continue to serve. Because what God is doing with business, he is taking your business, he is putting his hands into your business, and he is doing something throughout the earth that he started in the garden. He's going to be working all the way until Jesus returns. And then when Jesus comes back and returns again, then we will enter into this golden age of work in which we'll return back to the circumstances of the garden, living in cities, being fully productive, working in this direction, being satisfied here, and for the flourishing of everyone how have we turned business into? We've turned it primarily into how can we profit. Just some quick examples. In Nicaragua, 40,000 jobs were provided when a multinational company came in and they put a, a factory on about 30 acres of land. It's in the free trade zone in Nicaragua, and they came in and And we're in an area where the employment reaches as high as 60%. Providing 40,000 jobs is a magnificent idea. The problem is in this particular job market, most of the people that are working there, most all of the 40,000 employees are young, older rather, teenage girls and girls that are in their early to mid-20s. And most of the people who are working there as their bosses are men who are exploiting them and taking advantage of them in every sense of the word causing them to take bathroom breaks that are no longer than three minutes and often having them be strip searched every day before they leave to ensure that they're not stealing anything. In 1999, a company came and put a plot, uh, another factory out on some land in India where they produce over 500,000 liters of liquid a day that they put into bottles in cooperation with the local authorities and the government there, they took their sludge and they put it off in a certain place that was agreed upon on an aquifer, which is something that helps with the water in the area. And so shortly after they had done this, some of the local residents began to complain of health issues. Children were breaking out with spots on their skin. Women were having spontaneous abortions. The birth stillbirths increased dramatically. The crops in the area were not producing what they had in the past Teams went in to go investigate this. In 2004, this place was shut down. But two years later, when a team went back to go investigate to see how the recovery is coming, there's no noticeable difference in the health and the welfare of the people that are there. In 2007, Time Magazine, as well as the New York Times, as well as some others, brought light to a situation in two provinces in China where thousands of children had been kidnapped had been taken away from their homes. They had put them into these two particular factories where they were working with kiln factories, coal mines, working 18-hour days sometimes. Children as young as eight years old were taken from their areas in secret and and caused to work for virtually nothing. Slave labor. You may be thinking, well, I understand that. I mean, the, the whole world is really messed up. The rest of the world is just bad in their practices, you know, but in America, you know, we got a much better idea about this. We value human rights and we treat people well and there's never a time in which we get distorted thinking that money is the most important thing that would drive us. If I just mentioned the word Enron, what goes through your mind? When I was in high school in the late 80s, R.J. Reynolds, tobacco company, brought back Joe the Camel to be an advertising piece for them in which the American Medical Association and many boycotted them. They tried to bring so much attention to them saying, please stop this advertising because we're seeing a dramatic increase in smoking amongst children, identifying with your cigarettes, They resisted it year after year after year until finally they pulled it off saying that it was never really targeted at that even though their sales skyrocketed as a result. Let me give you what is in my mind the most dramatic and the most disturbing of all the examples. I was born in August of 1970. And in August of 1970, the same month that I was born, Ford put out into manufacturing the Pinto and so it was released to the public. They knew it had a design flaw. They knew from testing that if it was hit uh, from behind, there was a potential that, the, because of the way the the car was structured, that it would burst into flames and could cause significant injury and even death to the people that were in the car. So in 1972, they did the research and found out what a human life was worth, what they would have to pay in court. That figure came to a little over two hundred thousand dollars. So they began to do the math. And in their math, they realized that based on all the expected sales that they would have, uh, uh, combined with all of the payouts they would have to make to the families who would would pay a price in this, they determined that the payout they would have to pay to these families, because it was somewhere between 500 and 900 deaths that occurred here or hospital visits, in there, they realized it was going to be $50 million is what they would have to pay out to the families. In order to fix the issue, though, with all of their vehicles they had, the expected sales, it would cost them $11 per vehicle. And at the end of the day, it would cost them $137 million to fix this. And so looking at the numbers on the ledger, they said, we will continue with this. We will continue to roll it out because we can save 70, 80 million dollars. I doubt very seriously that anyone here in this audience right now is thinking, I I wonder how I can so exploit other people that if they burn to death, I'm just going to do a cost-benefit analysis. I doubt anyone in here is doing that. But can I ask you, can you honestly say that in your work, you got this going on so well, that you are so satisfied in here that your longing... Is that there would be flourishing of all, or are you far more concerned about your return on investment? What drives your decisions? I have no company in mind. I have no individual in mind here. I am not pointing a finger at you. I am asking the question, where do you fall? The fall had such a dramatic impact on our view of work that we have gone so far in many occasions to say the people who have succeeded are those who have the highest return on investment regardless of what it costs others. You have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter three. I wanna look at this fairly quickly. We'll look at two passages and I wanna give you a couple of points of application. Because work, by and large, has been turned inward for you and I, meaning that's the most natural place that you and I will go with it. Um, we don't have to try to do that. It just comes naturally. But also, as a result of the fall, there's, there's two obstacles or hurdles that we really have to deal with in our workplace. Pick up reading with me in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse 17. This is as a result of the fall. God is talking I'm sorry, go back to 16. God is talking to, uh, to Adam and Eve about the curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To the woman, he said, childbearing is going to be brutal. And if you've given birth, you get it. Now, I don't think we should limit this just to the birthing process itself. I think the way that we should understand this in Scripture is that everything that has to do with children being brought forth out of the womb of the mother, the fruit of her seed, if you will, that everything associated with that is going to be difficult. And I don't have to sell you on this, do I? Do I have to sell anyone that mothering, motherhood is hard? It is extraordinarily difficult work. Why? Because your children are actively fighting against you. They come out of the womb with these selfish desires. They're not working in cooperation with you, they are actively working against you in this process. You have the wisdom, you have the experience, you have the knowledge. You have been training and training and training. Your kids look at you like you're on drugs. Everything about childbearing is hard. It is difficult. It is a part of the curse. It was not supposed to be this way, but when they took the fruit and they ate it, it became that way. Only one time has Judith had the boldness and the courage to leave me with all six children. Now, she'll go down to the store or she'll walk around the neighborhood for a break. I mean, if we can have like a guy moment where we're playing the Wii, she's okay with that. But leaving us for an extended period of time, she is deathly afraid of, and there's good reason for that. She had to go to Rome to go help serve her mother. And so when she's in Rome, I am there with the kids. And when I say I'm with them all day, I mean literally from the time that that they woke up to the time that they went to bed, I had them in my care. So we had to figure out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can do eggs, and so we ate eggs that morning for breakfast. I can do sandwiches, so we ate sandwiches for, for lunch. We ate sandwiches for dinner. I have to bathe them. Getting all of them bathed, that's a job in and of itself. Getting them ready for bed, and then we have our little devotion, we have our prayers, we get to bed. I spend the entire day with these boys, and Judith comes home after being with her mom, serving with her mother, having a blast of a day. She walks in the door, and she's ready to chat and download about her day. And my my honest-to-goodness response was, I just want to go to bed. And so I went to bed. (laughs) It is hard raising kids. Do you love it? Oh, absolutely. Would you trade it? No way. Is it hard? Absolutely. Then he tells the guy, looking over at Adam, the curse that is a result of his choices as well. Cursed is the ground. The ground, just as your children are going to be actively operating against you, they are resisting you, they are in rebellion against you, the ground now, guys, is also acting in opposition to us. Men, women, all of us who work, regardless of what the work is, the whole system, the whole structure, everything about it is actively rebelling against us. Thorns and thistles, trying to choke it, it makes it far more difficult. Thorns and thistles weren't a part of the original design. You you know the frustration of not being able to produce what it is that you want to produce. This is the hurdle. That work sometimes becomes fruitless for us. You, You know what that's like. You have visions, you have dreams, you have desires for your company, what you can produce, what you can make, how you can assist, how you can benefit mankind, and you just can't do it. You can't produce what you want to produce. You you as an artist want to create and make beauty for people to enjoy, and you can't get out of it on paper or, or in sculpture or in painting, whatever it is. What's in here, you can't quite get there. You have wonderful ideas, but you just can't do what you long to do. It's fruitless. That is frustrating. On the one hand, what I want to say is just accept it. It's a part of the curse. The second thing, real quickly, that you and I have to deal with is that sometimes our work will actually become pointless or meaningless. The person who wrote Ecclesiastes wrote in a very different manner. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is writing in such a way that he is assuming or he's writing as if there is no other world uh, besides the world that you and I live in. Meaning that uh, that God isn't in charge. He doesn't have anything for us. After this, this is all that we get to enjoy and experience. He does not believe that personally. He's writing this as if it's true. And so from that perspective, he talks about his pursuit of wisdom. He talks about his pursuit of pleasure. He's going to get in now and he's going to talk about his pursuit of work. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, begin reading with me in verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You know what this is like. You know that there are times in your job in which you say, this has no point. It's not going anywhere. There's never going to be produced what we want to be produced. Let's say that you have a boss who puts together a team. And you work on a project together. And you spend six months working on this particular project. And the time comes in which this is going to be implemented into your particular uh, organization. And when it's implemented, it doesn't have the desired effect. And so within weeks of it being implemented, after all of your work, it's completely abandoned and thrown away. What was all my work for? Let's say here, as the author says, that you have worked so hard, so diligently, you've been faithful, you've used wisdom, you've put good principles into practice, you've worked honestly and diligently, and you know there's coming a day in which somebody else is coming after you to take over your business. And what are they going to do with it? Run it into the ground. If you're an artist, you you, you may be a part of that extraordinarily small percentage of people whose art lives on For centuries, for most of us, we're forgotten within 10 years of our death. The writer looks and he says, what's the point? It's all meaningless. It's not going to go anywhere anyway. The clothing store that I worked for in Montgomery, two men, cousins, their grandfather had started it, great, great, great men. A couple years after I left, they sold it. The man had that company, and the organization that I worked for had, had been around for over a 100 years serving people in central Alabama, and within four years he ran the company into the ground, and it is no longer in existence. Meaningless. So why work? Can we close by looking at this? Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. He takes us to a place where we look and we say, however, there is hope. Everything looks meaningless now. It is difficult for us to deal with the fruitlessness of our jobs, but there is hope. It's really not meaningless because when God is brought into the equation, when God is the one who gives the orders, when we follow his direction for how it is that we can be personally satisfied and minister so that a whole community around us can flourish, God has a plan that you and I will step back and say, yes. So tonight, would you focus in specifically on the work of Jesus who came down from heaven to earth. The task that was given to him directly by God was glorify me, get your instruction from me. And day after day, he went before the father saying, what do you want me to do today? And he was satisfied knowing that he was working unto the glory of God. And his mission was to live a life of perfection. The life that Adam and Eve did not leave. To complete the work that they did not complete. To do the things that you and I could never do. So that he could put his record of righteousness, his record of perfection on the line. Die on a cross, bring redemption for all who would come to him by faith. His work is finished. So look to Jesus. Jesus will guide you in your work. I'm only spending a second on it because we're we're taking all of next week to focus in on this. I just didn't want to leave you in a depressed state tonight. Two points of application. One, tonight would you repent of your largely self-centered view of work, your inward view at the exclusion of this and this. Repent of that and turn Jesus Don't turn to a system, don't turn to a philosophy. turn to Jesus. the ultimate worker. And the second thing is this: we're going to use this in the next couple of weeks, but what I'd actually love for you to do is take some time to contemplate where do you see the effects of the fall at your workplace? Where do you see where sin has entered the picture? What broken relationships do you see, etc, cetera, etc cetera, tonight. Let this sit. Work is hard because of the fall. Hope is coming next week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for what it is that you do. Jesus, thank you for giving us not just the model for us to look at and observe and and try to pull off on our own. But God, thank you for actually, Jesus, for you being the model, that that we um, can work unto your glory. We can be satisfied. We can work for the flourishing of others um, if you will help us. So, God, I ask that you, um, this very week, would bring to our minds um, where it is that we see the effects of the fall in our own personal lives, how it is that we treat others, how it is that we exploit, abuse, do whatever it is that we need to do for our own personal advancement. And help us to repent. And God, change us. That we, we might be the kind of workers um, that you have called us to be. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Brimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. With services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.